Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Hello, I'm Patty Murphy, your host on this episode of the Leadership Under Fire, Humanizing the Narrative podcast. For this interview, I'm joined by Philadelphia firefighter Sean Kelly McCauley. This is a conversation I'm personally and professionally excited for. Full disclosure, I've known Sean since we were elementary school age. We attended kindergarten together and continued to attend the same schools and run in the same circle of friends until we graduated high school. Sean comes from a family of FDNY firefighters, and it was always clear to me, even at a very early age, that Sean would follow in his father and great-grandfather's footsteps by achieving his lifelong dream of joining the department. In 2007, Sean proudly took the FDNY entrance exam and began preparing for his FDNY career. Despite his enthusiasm to learn the job, physical abilities, and willingness to serve the city of New York, Sean's dreams were derailed in 2010 when a federal judge ruled that the FDNY entrance exam 6019 had a, quote, disparate impact on minority candidates and was not a true measure of the abilities required for entry-level firefighters. So began years of litigation and waiting and worrying to see if he'd ever get the chance to serve the FDNY as a firefighter. Eventually, in 2016, Sean made the hard decision to leave New York City and join the Philadelphia Fire Department, where he proudly serves today. Sean remains a student of the job and hopeful about the future of the American Fire Service. In 2022, he was given the opportunity to attend Leadership Under Fire's Optimizing Human Performance Under Pressure program with the Cherry Hill, New Jersey Fire Department, which is how we find ourselves catching up today. Sean, welcome, and thank you so much for agreeing to be featured on the show. Thanks, Pat. It's it's a privilege to be here. It's an honor. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I know the answer to this question, but I want you to share with our listeners what early life was like for you. So I was born and raised in uh, Westerly in Staten Island, kind of tight-knit community about two blocks from the park, two blocks from uh, PS30, or obviously you and I both went to school blue collar family. My mother at the time worked at the Canadian consulate and then would go on to, to work as a nurse. Uh, my dad was a New York City fireman in Harlem and I grew up with twin sisters. So they're uh, we're Irish triplets. So they're about a year apart from myself. Uh, we were latchkey kids. I mean, we uh, spent a lot of time running around the street and came home when the lights came on. So that was basically my early life through the, the, the early time in Staten Island. Do you mind sharing more about the FDNY influence you experienced growing up? Because the Macaulay family and the FDNY were synonymous in my mind. Yeah, I would say so. So um, I would say my influence started a young age, probably PS school. I think it was 94. My dad won the apprentice medal for medal day. I remember as a kid going to school and we, we got to get out early because my dad got a limo or something to go to medal day. I think from that point on, it kind of stuck with me that I wanted to get on the job. I don't know much about it, but it, it, it stayed with me. As I got older, I would say that I was lucky enough that I would ride with my dad all the time. 
probably 10, 11 years old to like 15, 16 years old. I remember the ride all the way up to Harlem and just seeing like the neighborhood, like, wow, getting on the truck. It was big for me. That moment, it stuck with me and it was something I always wanted to do. Yeah, growing up, I remember any day we had show and tell you were bringing some sort of FDNY memorabilia or, you know, always whenever people asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Your answer was a New York City firefighter. Yeah, I mean, I guess growing up, I didn't want to do much else. I didn't really have a, a passion for anything else. Um, I was lucky, though. When I, when I grew up, I grew up obviously in a far apart family. Um, my dad was into road racing at the time, so we were always going to road races and you would see a lot of it. And going to work was huge. I remember as a kid, the guys in the fires would treat me I wouldn't say one of their own, but just as best they could. Down the block was uh, the Apollo Theater. I remember going to the Apollo Theater as a kid, and there's a uh, there used to be a tree outside. I think it was called like the Tree of Hope, but they cut it down, and it was inside. I remember as a kid, like my dad was there, and we would like rub the tree stump. I guess famous actors used to do that at the time. So it was just one of the things. Being there was very important to me. Um, I don't think I realized it then, but I do now. You mentioned running, and I know that running is a huge aspect of your life. I got into running later in life, but can you talk to me about racing and what your athletic life was like? Absolutely. So I guess uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. My dad was a two-time Ironman, I think 83, 84, uh, New York City marathoner. So it was kind of big in his life. Uh, for me, I started running at a young age. Mm-hmm. I don't think I really grew into it until I was in high school. I did a lot of road races beforehand, but I didn't really love it. And in high school, it was 2001, the coach came into the classroom, during the classroom, and uh, he asked who I was. I said, you know, my name is Sean. And he goes, you're Timmy's son? I said, yes. I said, okay, practice starts tomorrow, bring shoes. And uh, that was my uh, start into running. And from then, I ran all through high school and then obviously into college. Did a lot of road racing, triathlon, stuff like that. So it was, it was a big part of my life. We have so many memorial runs on Staten Island. In New York City, obviously, but you know, growing up, I do remember you and your family being very involved in a lot of those memorial runs. Absolutely. So 1998, Captain Scott LePedre was killed in a line of duty on Atlantic Avenue. I grew up with a young Scotty Jr. buddy. We went to the same church, uh, St. Paul's Church. We went to CCD together, and my dad was close with Captain Scott. They had a race for him every year in April. The Selleck run is another one. So Marty Selleck was killed in 1977, and... Uh, they had a race for him every year. It was called the Marty Selleck race. Unfortunately, uh, Marty's brother, Tommy, was killed in a trade center in 01, and they changed the name to the Selleck race. My dad was very close with Tommy, Tommy Selleck. He was, I would say, probably one of his closest friends. So that obviously had a significant impact. Um, but road racing was a part of everything. Everything we did um, was every Saturday, usually during when it was warm out, there was always a race going on. I think it's just wild that when I ran a 50-mile race in Pennsylvania in 2016, forget what mile I was at, but all of a sudden I heard Patty and I turned around and I saw you and I just couldn't believe you were standing along the spectator line as I'm running by of all people. I think everything that's kind of stuck with my family is I've always lived close to a park. Now I'm in Northeast Philly, so there's a park less than a mile from my house. So I'm always running in the park or down there. So it was, uh, yeah, it's quite hilarious to see you running by. I want to ask about, you had mentioned buffing fires and something about WNYF magazine. So what's the story there? I actually don't know it. I guess I probably should have found a better hobby as a kid, but uh, I would say uh, the infatuation was there with the job. So I used to have, I had an old 35 camera and I would take pictures all the time. So 
often is as a kid, um, they had these radios, like a scanner, and I would sleep with it next to my head. It has to my mother, but she didn't want nothing to do with it. But they had crystals in them. So I would sleep with it next to my head and listen for, for jobs to come out. So I can't remember what year was it. Probably just after I got out of high school, they had a fifth alarm down a block from my house. And we're going there, taking pictures of the fifth alarm. Actually, my dad was there. He was the aide at the time. And from those pictures, Jack Calderon, Chief Jack Calderon, uh, knew my dad, knew I took pictures of him, got them together, hooked me up with the uh, Miss Kimberly. She worked for WMA at the time. Yeah. And took the pictures. And then uh, within, I guess, probably that quarter, they put uh, the picture in uh, WMA. That was, uh, yeah. Was How old were you? Oh, geez. Maybe uh, young, <laughs> 15, young, maybe 16, 15 at the time. I'm, not, I, I'm honestly, I'm not quite sure, but young. Do you have that issue? Yeah, yeah, I do have it. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say also Buffin kind of got me in trouble. They had a, I remember in uh, Midtown Manhattan, they had a steam explosion. And uh, th I, this was a little older. I had a 93 Mercury Tracer and I drove to Midtown. I took pictures or whatever. And uh, when the fire marshal came up to me, he's like, you know, you got to get out of here. And he's like, wait, hold on. Are you Timmy's son? Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah. And while my dad gave me a phone call, he's pretty pissed. <laughs> so, yeah, I, yeah, it did a lot of run around. I did not know that, but I love it. So thanks for painting a picture for our listeners about what life was like growing up. Obviously, it was a tight knit community, a lot of blue collar workers, like all roads led back to the fire department, the police department, the sanitation department. Right. After we graduated high school, what was your plan? Well, obviously, being a fireman was one of them. So I ended up running at Rider University. Obviously, all this is just after 9-11. So we were it's 2001, obviously, my first year of high school. About four years later, graduated high school. My thoughts were either going to the Marine Corps or as a Navy corpsman or run. So what I ended up doing is I got some money to run at Rider University, and that kind of moved my hand to what I wanted to do. I ended up running at Rider University. Something I didn't put in the outline, and I don't know why I didn't, but are you comfortable talking about your 9-11 experience? I, I feel like I have an opportunity now to say like. Well, I'll add something in there. I think actually, I don't even think my wife knows this. So <laughs> this is silly, but it's not silly. So um, talking about road racing. So every year they have the, the Selleck race. Well, it's called, it was at the time it was called the Marty Selleck run, right? From, from Marty, who was killed um, back in the seventies, about a week before the trade center, which was obviously the 11th. I, I want to say the first week in September, my dad was always involved in, in the Selleck run, right? He was very close with Tommy Selleck at the time, both runners together. Tommy ran at Farrell. My father ran at a, at a McKee. And they knew each other forever. About a week before, we were bringing tables up to Nevada Avenue where the Selleck's lived, Matt and Inez. And we were bringing everything back. And I remember going, I was a young kid at the time, going outside the house. There was a table out front of uh, the neighbors across the street. And there's a bunch of books. And what was one of those books was Report from Engine Company 82. And picking the book up and reading it and, and falling in love. Unfortunately, um, within a week, obviously the Trade Center happened and, and Tommy um, was unfortunately killed. So the morning of the Trade Center, I was in school. It was like my second, I think it was second day in high school um, in class. And they, I, someone came to the door and said, are you Sean McCauley? I said, yes. He goes, you got to come with me. It was me and four other kids. And we go into the office. I said, your father's a fireman. I said, yes, you got to call your house. So at the time, my mother was a nurse. I was actually, she was surprised she was off. They called, she picked up, and they said, you got to go home now. So they, everyone went home. My mother picked up my sisters, got to the house. My mom kind of explained what was going on. Uh, no one had heard from my dad yet. 
So at the time, cell phones weren't that big and it was kind of an unknown. So I didn't know what was going on. We had an idea. I mean, it was only a pressure in high school. About that night, I'll say, I got a phone call from my grandmother. My, my dad was able to contact my grandmother. So he was alive. He was there. Um, he wasn't sure when he was coming home. I would say about 24 to 48 hours later, I went and saw my dad. And I remember seeing my dad come out and uh, his eyes were huge. He was, they were swollen. His face was swollen. And uh, I remember giving him a hug and remember him saying that Tommy had, Tommy's missing. He's probably passed. So I think at that moment, I kind of realized like, I, 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 saw, I, I think I understood the scope of it, but I didn't realize how much it would hit home for everyone else. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I think I'm very lucky. My family is very lucky, but a lot of others weren't. Yeah, 9-11 was such a pivotal moment for the world, right? And we were, as you mentioned, freshmen in high school. So obviously old enough to understand what was ha happening, but too young to do anything about it. It was a very helpless sort of feeling and, and a lot of confusion associated with that day. And, you know, to be starting out your high school career and, you know, early in the morning, I remember I was in band class, it was third period, and someone went running down the hallway screaming, they bombed us. And it was Port Richmond High School. So to be honest with you, nobody really <laughs> moved. But then we looked at our, our teacher and she looked so uneasy. And then she was the one who told us what happened. And I remember going to the cafeteria and there being like a line around the cafeteria to use the payphone because back then we had payphones. We only had one in, in the cafeteria. And then I, I give so much credit now looking back to the principals, assistant principals and teachers who ran an operation in itself when families obviously thought more attacks were coming, right? Like it was not an isolated incident. It was everybody coming to pick up their children and be close to their families. So for looking back now at what they did, you know, helping to administer, getting people out accounted for and like with their families, I have a lot of respect for that now. Absolutely. And even moving forward with it. So we were at a school, maybe about one or two days and then trying to get everyone back in. I mean, there were kids from our school who lost their parents. Yeah. So how do you, how do you get school going again? How do you keep people together? Um, I talked about when the, when the track coach came to the, to the, uh, to the classroom and picked me up. I actually thought he was a counselor. I had no idea who he was. I thought they were taking me out of class just for counseling or, or something. I remember that I want to say it was that night, a friend of mine, Danny, I called him. I remember him telling me on the phone, I was like, uh, my dad is still in there. They don't know if they'll ever, uh, they're trying to find him now. Fortunately, they never did. And I think, I, I, I would say it hit home, but I think I, uh, I think it hit home more than I ever knew. I don't think I realized until later on in life and the respect I had for those being there, for those who were going there, for the family members. For the family members who were going through it, through the midst of it, I think I have a lot of respect for them to uh, to raise their children. I think that's it's it's amazing. I know there's one like I have talked about 9/11 so much in my professional career that I'll be honest, like my recollection of that day is like almost a little skewed because I've talked about it so much that the day itself for me is a little bit of a blur. But I do know that on the one year anniversary. I was back in the same class with the same teacher, same period. So 
to your point about like moving forward the days, the weeks, the months ahead, for the one year anniversary, we could tell she didn't know what to do. You know, she said, what, what do you guys want to do? Do you want to talk? Do you want to play? Do you don't want to do anything? And nobody spoke, right? We're all like tough kids from Staten Island. <laughs> and a new student in the back of the classroom raised her hand and said, I'm from California. Obviously, 9-11 affected the entire country and the world. But what was it like to be here? And yeah. I'll never forget, it was like somebody flipped a switch because the amount of like crying and conversation that followed. And it was a very diverse school, right? We had so many different people from so many different walks of life. I remember some people talking about losing their loved ones and then kids saying they felt guilty because their parents were okay. They're, you know, carrying that around. And I remember another woman sitting next to me, her religion was Muslim. And so she didn't dress that way. I didn't know that that was her religion, but apparently her brother and her father would dress in traditional Muslim attire and they were subject to a lot of prejudice that year. So the conversation is one I will never forget because it was so complex for such a young group of people. And, you know, it was very special and very healing. And then for like the last 10 minutes of class, we actually did play music. And that was like healing in itself. To say that 9-11 um, changed the world is one thing, but I think it changed uh, New York City. It was a different place. Yeah. You know, it, it changed a lot. Uh, I know in my life it changed it, it changed everything afterwards. I would think probably one of the toughest things, right, that resiliency that we talk about, I would give it to the to the families. How do you build a resiliency when your loved one is now gone, right? Specifically when you have young kids. I think if you want to talk about that mental toughness, it's these parents, right? These, uh, the, the moms who had the ability to, to take their kids and kind of move forward. I think that's very important to, to recognize. Just families kind of stepping up and, and understanding what's going on. You're not forgetting, but you have to move forward, not just for yourself, but for your for your kids, for your for your family. You have to keep something moving. If it's a small step, that's resiliency. It's a lot. It's pretty tough. And then, as I mentioned in the intro, in 2007, you took the FDNY entrance exam. So how were you feeling at that time? Well, great. So 07, I'm at Roddy University, took the exam, just kind of waited for results and kind of just kept training. I was in great shape at the time, so I wasn't really worried about much. Um, but just waiting for the written exam examination results to come down. I remember guys in school used to make fun of me because I set up like a mock CPAC course where I was living, but I was just trying, I was getting ready to go. I knew I'd finish school, step right into the job, move forward. And that was it. At that same year, the list comes out and uh, I was 942 on the list. So I was ecstatic. So I knew within about six months or so, everything would be started kind of moving forward and I'd be happy, you know, good to go. So in 2009, you were technically hired by the department, but then within days, the list was frozen. Can you begin to walk us through the whole ordeal? So August to November of 06, the city opened the filing. January 20th, about 30,000 people took the exam, 21,000 are passing. At that time, actually, uh, the FDY had what's called a, a top program. It was for uh, FDY EMS. So you didn't have to be an EMT at the time, but you could apply within a year, you would get civil service. So I applied for that also. So in 07, we received our scores and then I got the letter for the medical, the run, everything. It was all moving forward. Then we get hired. We do the run on December 7th of 08 and we get our letters show up. Uh, it was the 15th uh, 
but at that time, uh, the next class, the city actually froze it, not because of uh, the lawsuit, it was actually fiscal restraints. So they only hired 100 guys, myself being one of them, and they froze the class saying, we'll hire again um, in the summer, but uh, we don't have the money for it now. So it was a shock, but it was like, all right, you know, no worries, I'll keep going moving forward. At the same time in 09, the EMS top program that I talked about, they actually canceled it. They got rid of it. So that was like, all right, well, that's not going to happen, but I'll just wait a couple more months and the, uh, the fire exam will, you know, we'll kind of go through it again. And then basically it was 09, I think it was, that a fraternal organization with the city of New York sued the city of New York and sued the fire department stating that the examination showed uh, racial disparity. So at that time, we, I don't think we knew what was going to go on, but it was everything kind of halted, frozen immediately. There were rumors that the exam, they would still hire again. It would be in the next couple of months or so, but we had no idea. I mean, honestly, we were kind of left in the dark at that time. So from about that time, everything was stopped. So obviously, while all of this is happening outside of your control, of course, what actions did you take and what were you able to give attention to and focus on? I think 2009, 2010 was kind of a big portion of my life. A lot of uh, good and bad, I guess, went on. So at that time, 09, when this was frozen, Personally, in 2010, I ran the New York City Marathon, so I was pretty happy about that. I was still kept in running shape, competed in uh, triathlons, and was swimming at the Lions Pool in St. George. At the time, I knew it was frozen, so I just basically started applying everywhere. I got my EMT because I needed to stand out, not just for our job, but for anywhere. I uh, got an internship at, uh, I think it's called Rumsey Still. It was old, the old St. Vinny's, Richmond University Medical Center. And I worked uh, overnights and the two to tens with a girl named uh, Tina Carousel on a two one Charlie right by the ferry. And I worked free at night, just learning and uh, trying to get a job somewhere. During that time also was when we started actually it was the 6019 candidate group. So like I said, there was a lot going on at the time and we weren't sure exactly what was going to happen. So about 09, myself, Ryan Daly, Dave Corgan, Drew LeBed, Connor Garrity, Joe Morrell, Mike McKenna, Dion Hines, Dave Corgan, and, uh, and Maddie Brunton, we developed a group It was called the 6019 Candidates Group. So what we ended up doing is this group came together with the, basically the sole agenda the, to get on the job, right? We wanted merit-based hiring. So during this time, the whole list was frozen, but it was in court for, for years. It would be years. The problem with a lot of guys had was the fact that for New York City, you can't be 29 by the date you apply for the exam. So a lot of us were concerned that if they threw the exam out, we'd age out. And we would be, you know, left in the dust almost. Right. So uh, 10 other eligible candidates and I established a 6019 candidates group. We started basically researching legal avenues in the wake of the ongoing lawsuit. Our number actually grew. We had about 800 candidates on the list. We held meetings once a month and attended basically every court hearing at the time. The judge was uh, Judge Garafis. And he actually, remember in court, he remarks that uh, my decision is one that will affect the candidates who are well re represented in the packed courtroom today. We actually got further notoriety within the Chief, the Village Voice, the Times, Wall Street Journal. The ball was moving in our direction, but uh, we were getting noticed and we wanted things to happen, but unfortunately it wouldn't. We didn't really have much of a choice at the time just to sit and wait for this legal action to be over. We were really lucky because actually we were supported pro bono by Sullivan and Galishaw. Paul Mannix was in charge of a group called, uh, who's deputy at the time, in charge of Merit Matters. So we joined them. And had Sullivan Galishaw actually support us legally throughout the whole court hearings. There was about 11,000 people who signed a petition to support us, to get us hired based on merit-based hiring. But as years would go past, unfortunately, they would end up actually throwing the list out. 
I will say it was a pretty trying time, but meeting the, the men and women on 6019, we did a lot more than just obviously the legality of, of working with the exam. This group that we developed, we ended up making working relationships with Commissioner Cassano, Chief Spatafora, and doing a ton of volunteer work. What we ended up doing was uh, we worked for the Silver Foundation for in 2010. We actually ended up running together through the tunnel, working with the Silver Foundation, helping them with you know, pre-race supply setup and other things for the run. After that, that would actually lead us working with the Tunnel Towers Foundation with uh, Battalion Chief John LaBarbera for uh, firefighters for wounded veterans. We raised money to build a home for Brennan Morocco and uh, Todd, Todd Nicely. Uh, both of them were injured, severely injured in Iraq, and we ended up building them homes in Staten Island. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. 2009, 2010 were... Uh, uh, Stressful and chaotic. Yeah. To follow up on some of the things you just shared. Okay. When you mentioned support from Commissioner Cassano, you had shared with me offline something that I think is worth sharing here because it speaks volumes about good leadership. So how did he support you? So at the time, like I said, um, we, we were in a the newspaper. There was, there was a lot of eyes on us that we wanted merit-based hiring. We were very lucky to meet with Commissioner Cassano. So what we ended up doing was, honestly, I just emailed his, uh, his secretary and said, we would like to have a meeting with you. And he agreed. And it was about six of us went to, the, to Metro Tech and met with Commissioner Cassano, who was a pure gentleman. What he did was basically explain what was going on with the lawsuit, how the city was handling it, how the city was trying to hire firefighters. He gave us so much, I would say, empathy and guidance to say that, look, this is what's going on. This may take a while. Maybe you should think of other options for the time being, because he had a little insight to what was going on, but he understood like we were kind of in a pickle. He had a lot of guys who wanted to get on, who earned the spot to get on. But unfortunately, right now, it was, it was, it was out of the city's hands. It was in a judge's hands. I would assume you're feeling a lot of mixed emotions in that moment because you have gratitude for the fact that he's being transparent and giving you guidance, but at the same time, it's not what you want to hear. No, tough is probably one of the best words I can come up with. When you had everything you ever wanted taken from you like that, I'm granted to look at it's, it's the career, right? It's, it's the job. It was life altering, not just for myself. I mean, I was lucky at the time, you know, I, I was in good health. I, I was I knew a lot of guys who were age, who were way older than I was, who knew that it was never going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so it was tough. It was great to see the support, but unfortunately, and it wouldn't matter because it was out of the city's hands. It was unfortunately in the hands of, of a judge who unfortunately sided against us and against the city of New York. Um, yeah, you mentioned the concern about aging out. Were there any other concerns that the other candidates had and what really can you paint a picture of what your relationship was like because i'm sure this is such a bonding experience for anybody involved absolutely so i would probably say at the time we came extremely tight-knit doing a, a good amount of interviews like i said a lot of volunteer work and working and basically showing up in brooklyn at, at the courthouse mm -hmm. gaining as much information we can having a um like an email group sending all the information out we can it was very tight what I will say is the fact that we learned a lot about resiliency, working together and building a trust for one another. It was a, a trying time, but I think a lot of guys were able to work with each other. If they got jobs elsewhere, where to apply for other cities, like I said, other jobs that were openings, places to get your EMT, basically giving each other other connections. God forbid this avenue didn't uh, pan out. I will say though, although we, I'll use the word, lost the legal battle, there was a small win. So I talked about the age requirement. So you, you can't be uh, 29 by the date you apply for the exam. So at that time, I applied for the exam back, oh man, it was uh, early 2006. 
when they came out with another exam, what the city did was anyone who took the 6019 examination, they extended the age. I think it was either 32 or 35 at the time. So those who were already aged out and took the prior exam, they gave them a leeway to say, okay, you could be 35, 32 years old and apply for the examination. And although, um, you know, in the end, we didn't end up where we wanted to be, we gave a lot of other people the chance to, to get on the job. And that's a, that was a win. Well, that's a good thing to point out. And talking about continuing to be tactically proficient and still trying to explore avenues to get on the job. One thing I don't know if you mentioned, I know you volunteered for Richmond Engine Company in Staten Island. Yeah, so at the time, you have to stand out amongst standouts, right? So what do you do? So I got my EMT certification, Richmond Engine, a volunteer organization in Richmond Town, small little firehouse on, on Richmond Road there. A little glimmer into what the job was about. It was important, I think, in my life. I never volunteered anywhere before. So it was good to see basic handline operations, get your hands on things that you'll hopefully do in your life. It was important to me at the time, and it still holds a small part of my heart that I was able to be there and work with great guys. A lot of those guys got on the job, became dispatchers, they became firemen. I learned a lot from them. I have a story. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember in the early days of my career with New York One News, one of the first fires I ever had to cover was actually a brush fire in yeah. Great Hills Park because Staten Island actually gets brush fires. <laughs> I show up with my camera, my microphone, I'm wearing a trench coat. Like I felt like Lois Lane. And I get to the scene and the chief sees me and he says to somebody, you know, walk the press down to where the actual fire is because they had everything sort of cautioned off. So I'm walking down towards where the fire is and I see you with Richmond Engine Company. And in that moment, when you got off the rig in your bunker gear, I won't lie, I saw five-year-old Sean living out like his boyhood dream just to see you like actually doing it was, I think there was like a moment there where it felt like we were playing dress up almost. <laughs> yeah, well, basically we were. <laughs> it's um, so, yeah, like you said, like uh, Staten Island's known for a lot, they, at the time, I don't know what they do now, but they did a lot of brush fires. Great Kills was always burning. So they would send Richmond Engine there. Uh, they were dispatched by the city. They would send Richmond Engine there because they had a booster line. No city rigs had booster lines, but Richmond Engine did. I think I want to say it was 300 to 400 feet. So the booster line can get into a lot of areas that uh, a lot of the other rigs couldn't. So, yeah, we went through a lot of brush fires over there uh, by Seabew. Yeah, it was, um, it was good experience. I'll put it that way. And then I know that after we bumped into each other there, we followed up and we had a coffee and something else to just humanize the narrative, right, about this whole time and ordeal. I remember you had invested in, in a condo and you thought you were really on this trajectory of, you know, starting your career with the FDNY. So you had investments all over the place based on the fact that you thought you were being hired by the city. Absolutely. So they, well, they don't put all your eggs in one basket. Well, I put all of them and then some. At the time, I was getting hired by New York. I moved out. I got an apartment up on um, uh, by Wagner College. I was actually painting it at the time. That was probably towards the end of the summer. I was supposed to go in uh, with the next month or so. Unfortunately, obviously, all that didn't happen. So my life basically got turned on its head. I didn't know which way it was up. And I kind of had to revert back to what was the next step. I mean, that's basically fighting for 6019 and applying across the country. I knew that it was going to be a long road, but I don't think I believed it was going to be the end. But I am glad that I started applying to different places across the country, without a doubt. 
So we all know in 2010, a federal judge ruled that exam 6019 was unfair and blocked the department from hiring candidates from that list. I really want to know how you found out and what was your initial reaction? We heard through the grapevine that the exam was done, um, but the news, the media hearing about it was basically how I heard about it. the chief. It was a civil service newspaper in the city, basically how we, we finally heard about it. Shock, dismay, I would say really angry at the time and probably emotionally like done. Just, it was a long road for a lot of guys to that they went through and now to hear that it's all over was terrible. At the time, I, I, I knew I needed another option, but I didn't know any other option. I think growing up through the job was a double-edged sword because I always knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't get it at that time. And I think that's probably what hurt the most. But I will say that after a couple of days, you kind of realize like you have to figure something out. You don't have an option. Leadership on the Fire talks about resiliency, having that motivation to, to move forward in times when they're when they're tough. I think that was it, without a doubt. I realized that I need to apply elsewhere and make myself stand out. So ultimately, you decided to join FDNY EMS, hoping you could eventually promote to the firefighter rank from there. What were some of the memorable experiences you had as a member of FDNY EMS? Well, I was very, again, I was really lucky. One of the best times in my life was joining FDNY EMS, I will say. So when I went through the academy at the time, it was all fireman sons. Every single one of them I was with was a fireman son, chief, what have you. I got stationed at Station 4, Lower East Side, wonderful place to work. Initially, I started working with a guy named Dave. Dave was an older gentleman who had been on EMS during a health and hospitals time prior to yeah. FDNY. Mm -hmm. And he kind of always gave me the, the rule of thumb. The job is 90% BS, 10% holy shit. Put it that way, right? And I think that still remains the same in the fact that you got to be ready when, the, when everything kind of jumps off. I was privileged enough to work one Charlie. One Charlie sat at the Trade Center, Church and Vesey. So mm -hmm. I had a lot of pride in what I was doing and where I was working. I was directly in front of the World Trade Center. When I initially got on, I was lucky enough to go to uh, Moore, Oklahoma in 2012. Mm -hmm. Commissioner Cassano, working with the Siller Foundation, sent a group of firefighters and, and uh, a couple of EMTs to Moore, Oklahoma during they had an F5 tornado to uh, tear through there about three days before we got there. Working with the Silver Foundation, we were able to basically food, water, helping anyone we can in regards to just getting them back to some sort of uh, normalcy. I was privileged enough to join the ceremonial unit uh, within the FDNY, led by Joe LaPointe. Mm -hmm. I met great guys like Richie Alisea, Jing Kong, Joe Dunn, Chip, uh, and Mark Guerra. They kind of took me into the family. That was, pride isn't even the word. I, I'm not sure how to, how to, describe it it was a family and and they knew what i wanted to do with my life but they understood if that makes sense um to work you know at the events working at funerals at memorials it was something i took great honor in doing within about a year or so a year and a half i was studying for the paramedic placement examination and actually philadelphia at the same time so i remember sitting in one charlie in the truck studying both manuals so within about a year and a half or so, uh, I placed well in the paramedic examination and got promoted. I went to paramedic school uh, in Fort Totten through the FDNY. Mm -hmm. One of the best probably paramedic schooling, no, the best paramedic schooling in the country. The doctors, the paramedics up there were amazing. At the time, I don't think I understood how tough it was. <laughs> Looking back now, I realized it's probably one of the most tougher endeavors I went through just because of commuting and, and getting out there and studying, but it was well worth it. So I get promoted to paramedic. And I go to Station 40 in, uh, in Sunset Park, another uh, tight knit house and a lot of fun. 
a lot of real, real medicine. I was put it that way. I learned a lot about myself and learned a lot about being a good paramedic there. Mm-hmm. Uh, memorable. We had an accident on Shore Road in 92nd Street. A gentleman uh, went off Shore, uh, excuse me, went off 92nd Street off Shore Road. And below Shore Road, it kind of parallels the Bell Parkway there. There's a park, it's on, a, on an embankment. Gentleman was older, he went through the trees down, probably a couple hundred feet down the embankment, was pinned in the car, got there, ESU and a fire were there, made our way down, got in the vehicle and started working on the gentleman as best I could with my partner, uh, Pietro. What stood out was because I actually got a command discipline for it. <laughs> I got in trouble for it, but that's a, that's a story for another time. But, uh, but yeah. You got some great luck there. But I will say, yeah, I will say I was really, I was lucky though. I mean, I had FD1EMS as an EMT and a paramedic gave me a lot of who I am today. Being a paramedic was an honor. I mean, it was a privilege to to be taught by a lot of these guys and to have the ability to work with them. It it made me the fire, I 100% made me the fireman I am today. The way I think, the way I act on scenes, without a doubt. It gave me an education that I could uh, never repay. You'd mentioned the Siller Foundation a few times. So for those who don't know, are you comfortable sharing who the Siller Foundation is? So uh, just after the Trade Center, Frank Siller and his family, I believe, started the Siller Foundation. I mean, Stephen Siller was uh, killed in a Trade Center. He worked in squad at the time. The story is he made his way through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel and unfortunately lost his life. But with him losing his life, Frank Siller and his family developed the Siller Foundation, which is probably... I would say probably one of the greatest volunteer organizations that's that's come across this earth. Um, right, I would agree. They do an amazing amount of work, not just for firemen, but for police officers. Um, when we were involved with them, they were building homes. Uh, it was called Firefighters for Wounded Veterans, building homes for those who are uh, coming from home from overseas who have been severely injured. So they were building homes for those for, I mean, I think Todd Nicely was a quadruple amputee. Uh, so building homes for these guys, um, giving them the necessary basics of a kitchen, bathroom, et cetera. When they, the Silly Foundation sent us to Moore, Oklahoma, that was eye-opening. It was it was a privilege to be there for them just to come with waters and anything, anything they needed, something as simple as a Home Depot card to get to put a tarp on you. I think that was huge. I think that that humanizing it, I think that's that's exactly it. I think they've done an amazing job through their foundation and it was a privilege, although it was a small part of my life, I think it was a privilege just to be involved with them. Yeah, they're uh, an amazing organization. And I actually lived on Oakland Avenue where Steven Siller and his family lived. So now it's renamed after him. I worked a ton with Frank Siller and the organization when I was a reporter. And I remember seeing him one morning in Cove Lakes Park because that's where I would run every morning and that's where Frank would walk. And we usually, you know, waved and stopped for a moment to, to talk. And I told him, you know, I left New York one and he kind of, his face just dropped. And I said, I took a job with the FDNY and he glowed. Like he was just so happy to hear that. So I, seeing that reaction from him gave me a little bit more confidence when I joined the department. He's an amazing man. You know, not many people can say that they've done that much for, for people. I mean, yeah, across the world. He's quite an amazing man. And, and like I said, it was a privilege to even work for them. I want to pause for a second and go back to something you said about, you know, you, you find out this news that you're not going to be hired as a firefighter. And you said, you know, you kind of wallowed for a few days, but then took yourself out of it. Like, can you talk about how you did that? Like, what was your focus? Because 
getting over disappointment is quite challenging and acceptance is very hard at times. I would say it might've been a couple, been a couple of days of wallowing, but I had running. Um, I was always a runner and I would go out the door. There were days you didn't want to do anything, but I, I think I understood that it was above me at the moment. I didn't have much of a choice what was going on. So I have to make a decision about myself. You know, I'm, I'm in my mid twenties, the time this going on, like I need to start a career, my life. I need to do something. So I think running was a huge part of that. Family support without a doubt. My mother was insane. I mean, my mother was uh, an integral part of that, but a lot of these things you have to resolve on your own. You, you know, you have to, you have to figure it out. So I would think of, uh, of running and just still the love for the job was there, just applying everywhere, looking at cities across the country to make that decision. And there wasn't any other choice. Whenever I tell people that I'm a runner, I feel like that is something that encapsulates a lot of things, including being uh, solution oriented. I think people, if you're a runner, you're always looking for solutions, right? Like I never run and think I can't do this. I'm always thinking I can do more. I can breathe deeper. I can, you know, pick up my legs higher. And it's always a practice in finding more depth. I think that's something that's kind of followed me through my life. Uh, not with just running, but um, my career, right? There's always another step. You can always move forward. That resiliency, that the endurance, right? The endurance to, to, to keep pushing was always integral. There's always something else. You can't, you can't just wallow on what you have. So I think a lot of that came from running and probably came from my family. There are going to be times when it's going to be real tough. You may not be in a war zone. You may not be really sick. It may be just a small part of your life that's everything. And then you got to realize that you got to stand up and move forward. So 2014 seems like a pivotal point for you because that's when the Philadelphia Fire Department exam is available. Why did you want to join the Philly department out of all the others you were looking at? So at the time, like I said, I was filing, um, I was taking exams from DC, Newark, Virginia, Boston, Chicago, and obviously Philadelphia. So this is actually the second time I took the Philadelphia exam. It was not the first time. <laughs> I wanted to go to a major city that was going to work. Philadelphia is a, it's a tough town. I'll put it that way. At the time, and they still are, I believe, going to probably some of the most work in the country uh, per capita. I knew that if I wanted to be a fireman, I wanted to be a fireman. I couldn't go somewhere that wasn't going to work. I knew I needed to get my hands dirty, and that's probably the only thing that would bring me happiness. So at the time, I didn't know, I, I knew about Philadelphia's the department, but I didn't know much about the city. So I just started testing. I said, why not? And I took Philadelphia and I got the phone. Well, I got an email actually from the city and uh, that was it. Philly is a great city. That's actually where I ran my first marathon was the Philly marathon. And uh, the food is phenomenal. Yeah. Philly's got a mixture of a lot of things. Like I said, it's a tough town. It's, it's Philly's a city of neighborhoods, places like Kensington, Brisburg, um, Fishtown. They're very tight knit neighborhoods. I'll say a lot of pride and who they are. And that was actually pretty big with me. It's kind of funny uh, being from New York City, right? A lot of pride in being a, a, a kid from New York City. And I get that all the time here. It's like, oh, Sean, oh, yeah, he's a kid from New York City. I have a lot of pride in that. I see the same thing with the guys from Philadelphia, having pride in their sports teams and their neighborhoods or who they are. It's an identity thing for them. And I, I will say a lot of that drew me to the job as well. Philly's about a million and a half, two million people. So it's not that small, but it is small in comparison. It's, yeah. It really is. You can drive six or seven blocks from where I live, and it's a totally different neighborhood. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, like I said, a lot of pride in, in, in who lives here. Yeah, it's a great, great place. 
So in 2016, you actually made the leap. You left New York City and joined the Philadelphia Fire Department. So what was the academy like and what were you feeling about the shift? It was eye-opening. So I had a friend of a friend who knew a deputy. <laughs> that was my connection to Philadelphia. I didn't know anybody. Um, I had a friend of a friend who knew a deputy who kind of gave me some insight. And that deputy, Eddie Grugan, gave me everything for my career later on the road. So the academy, it was what I expected. It's a paramilitary organization. I think as the days went on, I realized that um, I was joining a family. The guys who were in the academy with me, I came pretty tight with. One of my best friends now was the best man at my wedding. I joined a family and that was that was huge to me, not knowing anybody down here. Within, I think about three to four weeks of being here, we were going out with guys from the academy. So that was huge. Once we got to the far side, like the firefighting operations aspect of the job, I knew exactly. I was like, wow, this is it. The, this is what I wanted to do. But after dreaming of being an FDNY firefighter all your life, how does Philly compare or differ? It's the Wild West. I'll put it that way. It's on the seat of your pants, without a doubt, when you're at a busy shop. And I love it. I would say that it differs in the fact that financially, without a doubt, the operating budget is not as, as much as obviously New York City. Manpower, not as much. But I think the willingness of the guys who work here, the pride in a lot of guys that own the job have, and pushing the envelope is something that happens daily. It takes a lot of pride in being a Philly fireman. Um, and I think I know a lot of guys here feel the same way. So you still are in like the early stages of your career, but can you talk about some of the early days on the job and what it really is like working in a busy company there for you? So the city of Philadelphia is about 12,000 vacants, approximately about 12,000 vacants. It has a very high homicide rate, an opiate epidemic, and, uh, and you work in pretty poor neighborhoods. So I think when I first got here, I, I will say I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. I worked in Brooklyn. I thought I knew what I knew. I didn't know anything. When I first got on the job, when I got to the street, it was a July 4th weekend. I was detailed to Engine 45, Stormy Mansion, amazing company, amazing company pride there. And I worked in the engine for two days. While I was there, I remember staring outside the window, looking out, like going on runs in neighborhoods and just seeing poverty, like real poverty. And I had no idea what I was talking about. It was eye-opening, to say the least. My first two days, I worked with uh, Matt Letourneau. Matt, unfortunately, uh, died in line duty about a year and a half or so after uh, I got on the job. I remember Matt in 45's, like uh, their watch area, going over the mayday button, how to give a mayday, stretching lines. I had a day or two on the job, and he was going through all, all this. And I always remember that. We had, a, we had a small little job. like We call him a bump out out the back of a building. I remember one of the guys, he's actually my captain now, yelling in the rear of it, it doesn't count. It's not a job. Well, who would know? My first night work, I go to my firehouse, I walk in, introduce myself, cup of coffee in my hand, talking to the officer at the time, and then boom, hiked out for a box first in. At the time, we were in a, I think it was a 1993 KME. Those trucks, if you face forward and stand up, there's a little window, like a pilot window. Mm -hmm. I remember like I'm scared, putting my gear on and looking out the window and just see this place chugging. And I remember going, oh yeah, <laughs> this is it. Got off the truck. Like I said, I didn't know the guys I was with. Good amount of fire on the first floor, extended the second floor, you know, made my way in. After the job was out, came outside. And then Terrence, Terrence Gordon, who was the officer at the time, he pulled me aside. There was a little uh, step, sat me down, you know, took, and he's like, you all right? So, yeah. He shook my hand and said, welcome to the job. I think uh, at that point I knew, I, I knew exactly where I wanted to go. I, I was, I was, I was hooked. <laughs> Very happy for you. Yeah. My early time on the job was, uh, 
I put the job first beyond everything. Later on in life, I think I realized, well, now I realize that it's, it is still first, but maybe it's like one day. But uh, I was really lucky. So I worked at a lot of different parts of the city. I would, uh, we call them MXTs. In New York, they call them mutuals. But I did MXTs across the city. I was hooked uh, on working in busy areas and uh, trying to go to fires. I was lucky enough to sometimes to go to a good amount of work. Sometimes I didn't. I think it was about three years on, I would say. Two or three years on, I had a job that kind of tightened the bolt, so to speak. Job in a uh, Owen Hunting Park in a... Uh, two-story row far in a basement. I can hear them. We were second in ladder, make my way to the rear. You can hear the companies trying to make the stairs. They couldn't make the stairs because there were a ton of hoarding conditions, but fires in the basement. Force the door to the rear. Everything's cool. Good amount of smoke pouring out of it. Put my mask on, make my way in. I remember as I made my way in, there was like newspapers and everything, almost like a conga line, almost like you can only get, get through a small part. And I um, bicycle handle, ripped my mask off. And I remember at the time, I was, I don't want to say freaked out, but for a second, I was like, wow, oh, you know, like, <laughs> freaked out for a second but taking that i mean taking that second taking a couple of breaths rearranging myself making our way in and then it only got worse <laughs> we ended up going farther in lost water conditions deteriorated but luckily there's another company behind us that uh where it would give us a hand i think my early stages in the job kind of cemented how i became a fireman i think it i had a lot of lessons that i saw very young and um, i'm really grateful for that sean i think you have Murphy's Law attached to you in some way, shame or form. <laughs> that might be, but what I'll say is this. How do you become a better person? How do you become someone who's willing to have that grit, that tenacity, the, the ability to move forward, right? Those who, who, who have been given everything or haven't had those Murphy's Law, so to speak, happen to them really don't develop that, right? I think because of uh, everything from, six, you know, from the exam, 6019, Till now, I was lucky enough to be pushed in certain directions that may not have uh, supported me at the time, but they have now. Well said. Because now you have a pretty full life in Philadelphia. You're married to a woman who has quite a challenging job in her own right. You're both excited to start a young family. So when you look back today, are you grateful for the way that things worked out? Absolutely. I mean, I will say New York City is my home, right? I, yeah. I, I will always be a New Yorker. I don't think that'll ever change. But I look back as a kid to, you know, buffing, riding as a kid in Harlem. 3740 was probably one of the busiest in, at, at the time. Going through everything with the 6019 Canada group, uh, working on FDNYMS, meeting great people within a job. I think all of that gave me a lot of life skills that maybe I would have never had. I think uh, I was going to a CrossFit gym on uh, Highland Boulevard at the time. I think he's in rescue now, the, the gentleman who owned the gym. But I remember he told me he, when I was leaving, he said, uh, you may be put in a position uh, when you get to Philadelphia to save someone's life or to give someone that in that time of need to be there for somebody. Maybe this is the reason why you're going. And at the time, like, I, I didn't want to hear that. You know, I, I didn't want to hear any of that. But I, I think it, it it's true, right? Things happen for a reason. I think, unfortunately, it might have not been the best road. It wasn't that straight. It was all over the place. But uh, I ended up here, and I'm, I'm very proud of where I am. And in 2022, you attended the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Under Pressure program in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I just want to make a note to listeners, you can check out episode number 91 to hear more about that program from its organizers. How did you end up there? Like I said, I got really lucky when I got on the job. I met, a, he was a captain at the time, he's now a deputy, who must have saw something in me in regards to teaching and, and working on the job. So after a couple of years on a job, I was able to get involved in fire dynamics, building construction, and then obviously leadership on a fire. 
Chief Tears at the time was in charge of uh, the field training unit, and I got a phone call. Said, "Look, I think you'd do well in something like this. Are you interested in going?" I said, "Absolutely." Like I said, I think there was a lot of times in my career that someone saw something in me that I didn't see, um, and they gave me the opportunity. Chief Tears gave me the opportunity. I would say uh, Chief Bumpadre at the time, as I was going through the job, gave me all those opportunities that set me up for my career, and this was one of them. Leadership on the farm. So, what were some of the takeaways? for you from that program? So going back to what Dave told me when I first got on FDY EMS, that uh, 9% BS, 10%, holy shit. You need to be mentally prepared to go out the door, right? For everything. If it's something that's small or it's or it's a job, you have to be mentally prepared um, and you have to be willing to go at a, at a time's notice. You can be making dinner and then you're on a fire ground a couple minutes later. The takeaways of the thought is you can mix at the combat zone, being a nurse, being a fireman, being a police officer, you could take all those factions of your of that mental strength, that fortitude, and all put them together within this class. I think they're all very similar in the fact that that action, right, that time and need that someone may be in, that you may need to act, or that time for you to get involved. How do you build that strength, right? You can only do so many forceful entry drills and, and, and line placement drills. That doesn't really get you there. I think what does get you there, right on the top of there, would be mental toughness. Aside for a bias for action and that resilience component, what else do you like about the Leadership Under Fire endeavor? Anything stand out to you that makes it unique and special? Listening to guys that have been there before. Um, you had Al Hagen, Jim McNamara. Listen to stories from guys who've done almost exactly what you've done 25 years before. You know, I think all of us have very similar roads to where we end up. And hearing those guys talk about them, I think is supportive. I think it's huge. I enjoy that tremendously. Like Ray Downey's life. To hear from the family is humongous about these leaders throughout our community, not just the fire community, but anywhere. Um, I think it's very important. I'm glad we have that. Thank you for sharing that. So Sean, I think you're a testament to the fact that things don't always go as planned, but there's still another life to be lived on the other side of adversity and disappointment. Ultimately, what do you want people to take away from your story so far? Don't ever give up the ship. Keep fighting. There's always other options to complete your goal. During the time we were part of the 619 candidate group, I remember talking to guys from Chicago and they were going through the same exact thing we were going through. I think having that connection, talking to guys about what you're going through is very important. For guys taking the exam now, wherever you are, don't pigeonhole yourself um, just in one city. Some of the best firemen I know worked in other, they worked totally other careers before they became firemen. I would say always have other options, but always keep pushing forward. There's going to be tough days, but the sun always goes down. There always is another day. So what does the future hold? Uh, being a dad. Uh, I've spent most of my life chasing one dream and it's, it's happened, right? You know, it's, it's we're here. I think, like I said, I, I put the fire department majority of my life as number one. It's going to be like one B now. Not that I don't love the job, but I think it's time to be a dad and to be a good husband. I'm so excited for you. And I'm so grateful that you were here today to help humanize the narrative. So thank you so much. Thanks, Pat. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders 
to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.